Johnny Benjamin, MBE, is an award-winning mental health campaigner, film producer, public speaker, writer, and vlogger. Johnny is most well-known for his 2014 social media campaign called Find Mike, which went viral overnight and led to him being reunited with the man who talked him off a bridge when he was suicidal. The campaign reached tens of millions of people and led to Johnny becoming a prominent spokesperson on mental health and suicide. Personally, I believe that his candid, open and honest approach to openly discussing his struggles is much needed in order to change and challenge the stigma around mental health. Schizophrenia in particular has got such a massive stigma attached to it. And when I got that diagnosis, I was like, there's kind of no hope. When I was at my absolute worst point, when I was 20, ran away from hospital, completely given up. But when I went onto the edge, I was stopped by a stranger that was walking past. I had this amazing interaction that kind of changed everything. If you had a really bad back, you wouldn't wait like six months to finally go and see someone. Yeah. And so it should be the same for, you know, mental health as well. Just one person standing up in a company or in a classroom and just saying, I struggle with my mental health it has such a ripple effect. To start off the conversation, I just think a really good thing to talk over or for you just to explain to me and to people listening and watching the difference between mental health and mental illness and what that confusion can sometimes lead to as well. Just like physical health, mental health is uh, a spectrum. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can be um, on the kind of a good end of the spectrum where you know you're really healthy, you're really fit, body's good, and then obviously sometimes you could be in the middle where I don't know. Like for myself, I've got IBS, so maybe there's things going on. So I'm like somewhere in the middle, and then obviously be at the other end. It's the same with mental health. Sometimes you've got good mental health when you're on top of things and kind of um, yeah, things are going well. But then obviously there's the other side when you know um, things are not going so well, and we're all constantly on that spectrum, it just like, yeah, it fluctuates, just like physical health, it, it fluctuates and that's okay, yep. you know? Um, but yeah, me mental illness is obviously um, when your mental health needs to be treated, it, you, need, you need support for it, you need help for it. Um, people often ask me, you know, oh, when should I go to see a, a doctor about, you know, if I'm feeling depressed or anxious and, um, I tell them to think along the same lines as, you know, if you've got a physical health issue, like a, um, maybe a, a really bad back, like how long would you wait? You know, if you had a really bad back, you wouldn't wait like six months to finally go and see someone. You'd probably go, well, imagine, like within a few weeks, because you'd be like, yeah. and so it should be the same for, you know, mental health as well. If, if you've got um, an ongoing kind of ongoing symptoms of like depression, anxiety, whatever it is, you know, go and, go and get checked in and, um, yeah, go, go and see someone about it. I think one day we'll just have health, you know, I, I don't think we'll separate the physical or the mental. I think we forget that this is attached to this, you know what I mean? Um, I wish we didn't separate the head and the body. Where do you think that came from, that separation? Do you think it was just because it's easier because up here was almost invisible and people mm. couldn't understand it, whereas a broken arm is very understandable? What do you yeah. think led to the disparity between the two? Well, I think well, like what you've said exactly, I think also there's just such a lack of sort of research into the brain um, compared to, you know, again, the physical body things and, and, and physical illnesses like, say, cancer. There's been so much research, um, you know, done into things like cancer or, or like heart disease. Um, but the brain, mental health, people just they haven't gone there. I think there's a fear as well. 
know, people are scared to kind of go into the brain and really kind of research it and um, yeah, but we, we're slowly catching up, I think. When do you think people really started to kind of wake up and actually take mental health almost as seriously as physical health? Is that last five years, 10 years, mm. 20 years? And what was the pace of that change? Well, we're, st we're in the middle yeah. of it. And I think actually we're only at the very start of yeah. it, um, to be honest. And actually, you know, the UK is further ahead than a lot of countries around the world. But I think it's been really recent. It's only been really recently um, with people uh, well, like the young royals talking about mental health, that's been pretty big, mm -hmm. you know. Whenever someone opens up about their mental health, it, ha it has such a ripple effect, you know. Just one person standing up in a company or in a classroom and just saying, I struggle with my mental health, it has such a ripple effect. Yeah, we're seeing it more and more now, particularly in, in, in the UK, but like I said, other countries are um, much, much further behind and got a longer way to go. That's why I love, and we're jumping way ahead here, but I just had to bring it up, that's why I love what your new charity is focusing on um, and getting into the primary schools, right? And making it okay and normal for people at a young age to openly talk about their feelings. Mm -hmm. Because that means what we're seeing now is these positive role models coming out and allowing the general population to openly talk about their feelings. But if you can get that in people's heads from a very young age, then they grow up with that just being the norm. And yeah, we'll get, we'll get to that bit. We'll get to that part um, when we get there. But I'm just kind of interested in kind of, if it's okay with you, taking it back to childhood. Um, so what was, your, what was your upbringing like? Uh, my upbringing was traditional um, sort of middle class, conservative family childhood. But for me, uh, my mental health issues kind of came to the fore when I was about kind of four or five. So I started seeing things that weren't there and um, hearing things that weren't there. I became um, very withdrawn and isolated and anxious. And so my parents took me to see a psychologist from, from the age of about five. Wow. Yeah, so we knew early on that... Do you have memories of, of seeing the psychologist from five mm. years old? Yeah, only not loads yeah, of memories, right, but yeah, yeah no, I do, I, I do, yeah. But I didn't really understand what was going on and um, that's the thing, again, like going back to what you said, I wish someone would have explained to me or not, not hidden it away. I know that, you know, my parents didn't really kind of, wasn't something they told everyone about, like, oh, my, my little boy's going to the psychologist, do you know what I mean? Like, how something. could you even start to get your head around it at such a young age if no one else could tell you what was happening mm. in the first place? Yeah, I just, I, I, yeah, I didn't have a, a, a clue. Um, and then, yeah, in, in secondary school when, I'd say my mental health issues really kind of um, really manifested. Again, no one talked about it, and so yeah, I had no idea what was going on. Um, I was so confused and um, yeah, just really struggled, really struggled with what was going on in my head, um, and was scared to really talk about it because it just wasn't it just wasn't talked about, you know. Just, there was no I didn't have the language to. Yeah kind of explain what was going on. Cause what do you think would have happened if you did have the language to explain? Because do you, think, do you think it would have helped having the language to explain even if the environment wasn't comfortable enough for you to actually talk openly? Would it have allowed you to help yeah. rationalise what was going on? Well, I'm, I'm sure I would have then been able to maybe find an environment where mm -hmm. I, I could have spoken about it. But having no sort of emotional literacy, um, yeah, really sort of held me back especially at that age as well, when everyone's trying to come to terms with 
how they work, who they are. Yeah, it's such a, you know, being a teenager is yeah. really hard yeah. already. But then on, when you've got sort of mental struggles on top, it's extremely, extremely tough. Um, so, yeah, it took a long time. And in fact, in, in the UK, the average time between your first symptoms of a mental health issue and your diagnosis and your treatment is 10 years. Usually takes 10 years. And that was kind of true for me, I think. Um, what impact do you think it would have had if that process was even halved? Mm, I know. I, yeah, absolutely. Well, in your, in your opinion, like if, if, if you were able to have been diagnosed even before you were 10 years old, mm. what impact do you think that could have had? Well, it probably would have stopped me from getting to the point that I got to, ultimately, which was really unwell, um, suicidal. You know, it could have stopped me from getting to that point. But it, it, it didn't happen and, um, you know, no regrets because uh, I wouldn't have learned everything I've learned today unless I'd have got to the point that I got to. And, um, so, yeah, no, no regrets. But obviously, yeah, I wish <laughs> I wish I could have um, understood what was happening earlier and been able to speak about it and, yeah, being able to get support for it. But um, that's why I do the work. Yeah. do today to try and stop other young people. All of your experiences come together into mm. what you're doing now yeah. for the greater good, which is just incredible. So obviously the events that happened on the bridge mm. and your suicide attempt, do you feel like that was down to your mental illness or the snowball effect from being four years old, the snowball effect of your mental health? Um, I think it was a bit of both. So firstly, I think it was related to my my diagnosis that I got when I was 20, which was schizoaffective disorder, um, combination of schizophrenia and bipolar, because schizophrenia in particular has got such a massive stigma attached to it. And when I got that diagnosis, I was like, kind of, there's, 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 there's kind of no hope. So what was your understanding of schizophrenia and bipolar before and then what is your understanding of it now? And what do you want people listening to this to understand about it? Well, this is it. So, yeah, so if I'm honest, before, if you'd have said to me, um, what is schizophrenia? I probably would have said, mm, it's people that are violent, mm -hmm. it's people that are dangerous, because that's all I read in like the media, do you know what I mean? So that was my perception. So then when, to get a diagnosis of it, I was like, whoa, like, am I, am I, going to be violent and you know dangerous yeah. um, and even then no one explained it to me really no one the psychiatrist that I had or people around me no one explained exactly what it was um, and no one wanted to kind of uh, delve into maybe why I was hearing a voice and you know thought I was being watched on no one wanted to which it doesn't make sense really it was just very much like you've got this diagnosis you're really ill um, here's some medication and that's it. Um, whereas now, I mean, through things like therapy, I've come to understand a lot about um, my, my, my mind and schizophrenia. And, and, and something that I like to always point out is that people with schizophrenia um, or any serious mental health issue are much more likely to be victims of violence yeah. rather than perpetrators. Um, 
because I think because of the media, I think there is uh, people do kind of associate things like schizophrenia with violence and and uh, yeah, that's just not the case. It's, it's, it's a very small small minority of people with things like schizophrenia that um, commit violent crimes. There's so many people out there living with schizophrenia who are, you know, you could be next to them walking down the street or on the train, they could be sitting opposite you, but again, because of the stigma, people don't come out about it. I've, I've, I've met a lot of people with schizophrenia or a diagnosis like mine, which is a form of schizophrenia, who are just, they will, they will not come out about it because and that's, that's such a shame. Uh, it's such a shame because um, the more people that will, would come out and, and talk about it openly, I think, yeah, the more the stigma would be reduced. But I also understand why they don't come out because the fear, the, the fear of yeah, being being judged. But um, I do think the media needs to take more responsibility. Um, yeah. And do you think that is happening now? Are the media taking more responsibility in the short space of time that you referred to before, where there's lots of change happening? Mm. I don't think the media are, are doing enough or, or taking it seriously enough. Um, I mean, there's, there's, so for example, when it comes to something like suicide, there's certain media guidelines yeah. that aren't followed. So, so for example, um, the, the, the term commit suicide in, in the media guidelines, um, the term commit suicide, they say shouldn't be used because, you know, um, commit, when you commit, something it's usually um, something that's um, kind of against the law you commit a crime or you commit a, a, a murder and and suicide was decriminalized like decades ago so why and I know a lot of people who have lost loved ones to suicide really hate that phrase commit yeah. suicide because it's like my loved one didn't commit a crime they, they were trying to find a, a way out and it's not a crime and so the media have been told countlessly um, yeah, don't don't use the term commit suicide, and yet they still use it. Um, so, yeah, I get quite frustrated with the media because uh, I wish they'd pay more attention to certain guidelines. That yeah. you know, that if they if they, they need to lead the way, I think um, they've got a responsibility, don't they? Yeah, like, I wasn't even aware of the connotation with commit suicide, but it is in my vocabulary. Sure. As a, because yeah, but that's again that's set by the media. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if they just changed the, the language. Yeah, and the know, connotations like, to yeah. it as well. Okay, so going back to 20 years old and getting that diagnosis, what stage were you at then? And kind of how did that make you feel once you heard the news? Um, well, when I got the diagnosis, I was, I was really unwell. Um, I, I'd been put into a hospital, psychiatric hospital. Um, and I, I just, Mm, I just, I'd really, I'd, I'd given up. I'd really given up, to be honest. So, um, because there was other things going on as well. I mean, I was struggling with my sexuality, which was a, a big issue for me coming from a Jewish. Yeah, yeah. and that was background. obviously that must have been. How long were you struggling with that from, like early teens? As yeah, well? absolutely. So that been going on for years. So there was a lot. Yeah, there was a lot happening, um, and then getting that diagnosis is kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back. Really, mm -hmm. um, I was just like. Yeah, because sometimes people say that um, receiving a diagnosis is actually kind of a relief. Yeah, finally, that's what was going through my head. Would that have been a relief? Because again, this is just from my perspective. Almost everything is now makes a bit more sense. But was that how you felt about it? Not at all. No, 
A, because again, because of the stigma attached to schizophrenia, and B, because no one explained it, and C, actually, because no one gave any sort of hope. You know, no one, um, no one said it's, it's going to be okay. You know, you, you can get through this. Those few words make all the difference. Though. Yeah, I mean, um, again, if I compare it to physical health, so my dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer about two years ago, and. Um, when he got his diagnosis, he came home from seeing the specialist and he had all these like booklets, like different information on what to expect during treatment. And, you know, these booklets were like full of like positive language and, and sort of colorful imagery. And there was there was an element of hope to it. Yeah. But there's nothing like that for, for if you get a mental health diagnosis at all. Um, I know that would have really helped me and, and my family if we have got something like that. But they're just I think there's a lot that needs to change, actually, in the kind of mental health system itself. Um, yeah, a lot that needs to change, not just within the system, but in terms of the people, the, the people that, um, the staff within yeah. it. Because if um, you're like told, because obviously you were in a, must have been in a very vulnerable state then, as, most, as would most people in that situation. If you're almost told that you've got a, a, you've got a mental illness, that's almost like with no empathy, that's gone into that diagnosis. That's almost you being plumped right in a box as well, mm. which dictates how you then view yourself and the actions that come after it. Exactly that that initial. And again, like I, I try and I try and do work within the the, the health services and mm. talk to like GPs because that first that first interaction or that first kind of time you get a diagnosis, mm. the, the the way you interact with that person is so important. And I've heard so many horror stories of, you know, um, people getting that diagnosis and yeah, just being kind of, just being told, well, this is it, this is the rest of your life, get on with it, do you know what I mean? And just, mm, lack of, um, lack of empathy, lack of, lack of hope. Um, but you think that comes from the lack of understanding as well? Yeah, lack of understanding and, um, sometimes lack of training like I know like in this country only 50% of GPs have any mental health training really? which doesn't make sense because you know so many GPs now are, are, are dealing with um, mental health issues you know all the time so for only 50% to have any training is just ridiculous um, so a lot of them just don't yeah they don't have the understanding themselves what what do you think is needed in order to propel that change forward or is it just just time well no I think it, I mean, it needs to come from the top absolutely yeah. But the thing is now, I mean, not to get too sort of political, but um, everything is so focused on like targets and there's so much bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. um, I speak to so many doctors and clinicians who are just so frustrated with, um, you know, they've got to be constantly writing report after report after report when they'd rather be sitting down with, you know, they didn't come into this job, they came into this job, this profession to, to care for people and to, you know, look after people. And instead they're having to, I was talking to um, a clinician recently and he was saying that he, he's now having to cut his appointment shorter and shorter and shorter to make time at the end to fill in all the notes and tick all the boxes that he needs to, um, when he'd rather not have to do that. But if he doesn't do that, he'll, he'll get sacked. So he has to cut time, cut, cut short that time with his patient. It just doesn't make sense. It really doesn't make sense. So I think, um, yeah, it needs to come from the top. Um, I think, but yeah, I think, um, Hopefully things will change. Yeah. 
Um, but you're not leaving it down to hope, though. How many times have you been in the, the Parliament or House of Commons? Mm, a few, but... What, what, so what else is, is, is currently being done in order to actually propel this? Not just from you, but just generally. Well, what need, and, and again, what needs to? A, a, a new government. Um, <laughs> a whole new government of people that actually um, care. Yeah. I mean, that sounds really harsh, but... Um, I talk to politicians and um, I, I, it's just, it, just, it just gets so frustrating when, um, you know, you talk to politicians or politi politicians will, will say, you know, we are committed to doing more in terms of mental health. And, you know, we're, um, we've got this money and we've got this coming in and, and, and you know, this is happening. Um, and yet they don't, they don't acknowledge the fact they've cut so much already so it's all very well putting in saying oh put in putting in this money putting in that money but actually hold on you've taken away so much already that that's not going to be enough the money that you're putting in and yeah so much of it is just words rather than action and it does get very frustrating um i know a lot of people um not just within the mental health sector but other sectors are very frustrated um, with the lack of um, sort of action. And when it comes to mental health, I think because people are talking about it more, I think people are just assuming that, yeah, well, everyone's talking about it more now, so things must be getting better. But the reality is, because more people are talking about it, more people are asking for help. Mm -hmm. And because more people are asking for help in an already shrinking sort of system, it's just, it's a, just a catastrophe. Um, so things really are getting worse in terms of um, the, the help and the support and the treatment out there. It's almost a catch-22, isn't it? Because as the stigma lowers and more people feel comfortable talking about these things, but the system doesn't change, then that's almost good that people feel comfortable enough to talk about their feelings, but actually it will make the whole situation so much more worse because exactly. they're just the support isn't there. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I try and look for the positives. So, so what I'm seeing now is more kind of grassroots yeah. organisations people that are starting things up themselves, whether it be like a local sort of um, support group. I see loads of those popping up all the time. There's something called Mental Health Mates. Okay. Mental Health Mates is, um, again, grassroots organization where people that have lived experience of, of mental health issues get together and they go for walks or things like picnics. And, you know, you just, they're all over the country. Um, and people are finding their own, yeah, own ways of kind of, helping themselves, their own support. We can't just sit around and rely on kind of the system, the government, we can't, you can't. Um, so people are finding their own ways, which is, which is great. I think that's a positive. Yeah. And I, I think what's really positive is more and more young people. Yeah. Like when I go into schools, they're talking about it openly. And um, you know, when we were at school, I mean, when I was at school, well, no one ever, ever shared anything about their mental health, I'm sure. Well, I don't know, maybe. Same with I went to an all-boys school, so even mm. more so, yeah. So, but, but things are changing when they're going to schools, so that's a positive. Yeah. So, yeah, you have, to, you have to look for the positives, I think. Of course. You mentioned just before about lots of things popping up, people taking the matter into their own hands. Just out of interest and for interest of anyone's watching, is there one central resource that combines everything? That instead of just kind of Googling and searching, doing your own research, there's possibly all of these different ventures that you could see what resonates best and, and sign up from there? And if so, what is that? So, there's now something called um, the Hub of Hope. 
So Hub of Hope is a, is a website, it's also an app. Okay. And you just put your postcode in and, or you click locate me and it brings up oh yeah, all your local yeah, support groups, um, organizations, and you can filter it down into different categories. Maybe you're looking for something on grief, maybe it's anxiety. So I really like that, that you can, yeah. Personalised as well, isn't it? Mm, it is, yeah. Okay, so we'll, we'll link that mm. below if anyone's watching on YouTube or Spotify Absolutely. and iTunes or anything. That's really great. Um, okay, so let's move the conversation over a little bit to, I don't really know how to best phrase it, but I think it's an important topic to talk about. Um, just kind of mental health in males, like the suicide rates for being a male are considerably higher. You, you probably know much more stats than I do. But I think what I'd be really interested in talking about is the impact of expressing feelings from being a child, where actually I, I think we're looking into a study where boys are actually more expressive emotionally than girls at a young age. And being told to man up or kind of put inside a box of what it means to be a man, what effect does that have and what can be done to combat that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really damaging. It's really damaging. I mean, you know, there is this phrase, yeah, man up or, you know, Big boys don't cry, I hate that phrase. Um, and yeah, of course it's gonna cause boys to suppress what's going on emotionally. Um, it did for me, I know, you know, I was, when I was really young, I was really sensitive. And you know, I cried quite a lot as a, as a little boy. But then as I started to grow up, family teachers would say, you know, Johnny, come on, you know, big boys don't cry now. Um, and I'd be like, oh, okay, so it's not, it's not all right for me to show emotion and be vulnerable. Um, so it's quite, yeah, we need to try and stop giving boys that message of, you know, but not just boys, but not just boys, everyone, you know, no, no more tears, you know. And I understand it's difficult because, you know, no one likes seeing particularly kids in distress. You want to stop the tears. You want to kind of, do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, stop it. It's, it's but actually, sorry, go on. well, no, actually you need to, you know, it's okay. It's okay. It's just, and, and encourage someone to talk about it rather than just stop. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, uh, yeah, we need, to, we need to stop trying to shut down people's emotions. Um, we, d we do it as adults as well. I've yeah. seen people do it, you know. Even more so, I'd, I'd say, mm. no? Yeah, because people are really uncomfortable with it. Because a lot of it is, is, is from the teachers and people in authority, but a lot of it is peer-to-peer -peer as well, I'd say. Mm. Like again, all boys school, it's kind of that breeds a certain type of mentality. Um, so it's not just the, the, the teachers and, and parents or whatever saying the man up and the crying, it's the, it's the unwritten social rules that dictate how you should act and why you should act that way, yeah. which in itself is, I believe, quite damaging. Absolutely, I think so much of it is fear. Yeah. Um, people are really afraid of human emotion and standing out and being different, maybe? Yeah, people are, people are, people are afraid, yeah, absolutely. I think maybe the, do you think people are afraid of being vulnerable? Yeah, oh gosh, yeah, absolutely. The one thing I said in that bit that I wrote down after your talk was, I think vulnerability breeds relatability. Mm. When you see other people, especially in your peer group, being vulnerable, that is ultimately much more relatable. The way I like to sum, sum it up is, have you seen First Dates? I've, yeah, I've watched it, yeah. So you know how whenever someone walks in, I've had this talk with so many people, whenever someone walks in, mm. it's so easy to immediately judge people. Because yeah. that's, human, that's human instinct to judge people because it's like a safety mechanism. But as soon as people are sitting down having that date on their main mm. course or whatever and the 
the sob story comes or something about a story comes through, mm -hmm. that there's a switch that instantly happens from kind of judging to Absolutely. relatability. Absolutely. Because at the end of the day, you realize that they're just human. They're just yeah. like you as well. Yeah, so true. It's so true. And yeah, I think it's all fair. Yeah. It's all fair. Um, and I think the world we're living in now in terms of things like particularly social media, you, there is so much judgment. There's so much judgment in comparison. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, it's, it, really, it, bo it really bothers me. It really bothers me. Um, it really worries me about what that's doing to us all. Um, there's just less connectivity, isn't there, really? Uh, through things like <laughs> social media and even, like, tech technology, the way it's developed, there is, I mean, I'm not knocking technology, but there is now less connectivity with, with each other. Well, technology is supposed to make our lives easier, but it's actually making us much more distant from each other as mm. well. And I think that's a, a byproduct of convenience. And going back to the conversation of, of social media, this is, this is something that's really interesting to me, and I think I briefly spoke to you about it before. Um, Again, it's like social media as an idea obviously makes a lot of sense because it plays onto our innate needs to be social and to see what everyone else is doing and to kind of communicate ourselves to our friendship circle. But the way that social media has gone from a business point of view, they are solely engineering these platforms to hold your attention for as much as possible and going down that rabbit hole more and more, that's dangerous from a mental health perspective. So like, I'm really interested to kind of go into this with you because social media came out really, Facebook came out mainstream when I was in year seven. So I grew up and same with everyone else from my generation with Facebook at my fingertips. Mm. So trying to use Facebook and Twitter as a medium to communicate who I am to the world while still trying to figure out who I am internally as well. The comparison that comes with that and the, the FOMO and fear of missing out that comes with that as well the impact that's had on our generation. I think, I think the positive, starting with you, I always like to start with the positives. I think, I think our generation, the younger generation, are much more naturally empathetic and concerned about world issues because of social media. Because yeah. Twitter, before my parents and my grandparents used to socialize with people in their village, in their sure. circles, sure. maybe the village afterwards. Yeah. But our generation grew up being able to understand and empathize with people's opinions and outlooks from halfway across the world. And I think that in itself made the world a much smaller place. And I think the, what's happened as a result of that is positive. Mm. But the negatives are, it, it just breeds a certain type of constant comparison and fear for constantly putting yourself out and putting yourself in the best light and putting filters on everything and filters on your life. And the issue is, I've seen, this, I've seen this said lots of times, that Instagram, because it's everyone's highlight reels, it's everyone's show reels, that naturally means that you are comparing your real life and your day-to-day -day life with everyone else's yeah. show reels. And the negative implications that can have, sure. especially now with Snapchat and Instagram, where people are yeah. 13 or 12 going through school, what do you think needs to be done about that to, kind of, to combat that? Have you given advice in that realm to young people in social media? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, kind of like what we were saying before about people showing emotions, people are just shut down, no, no, don't, don't cry. 
Don't cry. <laughs> Again, it's the same with things like when I talk to young people about social media or technology, they often say to me, well, you know, my parents just say to me, just stop, just get off it, but they don't understand. Again, I think we need to allow young people to really, you know, voice what's going on for them rather than just like, get off the phone, you know, stop it. Let them, you know, again, no one wants to hear kind of sometimes what's going on. So when I talk to young people about social media, you know, I've done workshops and things and all this stuff comes out about, you know, how they feel using it and what it does for them. And it's so interesting and it's, again, it's so important for them to be able to express, yeah, what, what's going on, what it makes them feel, what it does to them. Um, and um, I do think that the, the social media platforms need to take much more responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and it's difficult, you know, I've, I've been into Facebook, I've been into Twitter, but there's such large organizations that, you know, you, know, you, might, you might talk to one person here, but it needs to filter across the whole organization. So in, in your part. opinion, what, what, even the small little change, because I know Instagram, have just released that they're mm. testing something in Canada. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Removing the likes, which I think is is brilliant. Mm. Um, what other kind of little ideas do you think would help mental health and addiction to social media? I guess this is this this is probably a bit too far fetched, but um, go on. Well, I, I'd like <laughs> social media to um, social media platforms to maybe like. <laughs> shut down for a, a little period. Can you imagine if like the whole of Instagram... Just a blackout. Well, they said Instagram were like, we're going to take a day off. Sunday, every Sunday or every other Sunday, let's just take a day off. So can you imagine what that would do? I think that would like... What would that do? What would the... Just in the UK, Yeah. what impact would that have? I think that would... I know I'm probably going to be people watching being like, no, how can you say that? But I think it would take a lot of pressure off people instead of being like... Um, Oh my gosh, I'm 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 so it's a Sunday and like I'm here. I need to be like you know, like snapping. I need to, everyone needs to know what I'm doing. Everyone need, they'd just be like it's Sunday and oh my gosh, I can just enjoy the day without having to worry about what I'm going to post on Instagram. I think it would relieve a lot of pressure. Again, I talk to young people and they often say to me, um, you know, when they when they go away somewhere um, and they they don't have internet connection. Do you know what I mean? It's like the worst thing in the world because, you know, how are they going to keep in touch? But, but, then they tell me that, you know, a day later they're like, oh, I love it. I love, it. I love the fact that I don't have the internet connection. I don't have to worry about keeping in touch with um, my friends on Instagram or, or WhatsApp or I just, whew. So that, that's the bit that I wanted to say next. So we might be moving too much into psychology here, but still worth having a conversation mm -hmm. over regardless. What causes, what causes that need or dependence on trying to put yourself out there and keep up with the Joneses and that pool of social media because what you just said I agree with if it were to shut down people would ultimately feel relieved and I feel like it doesn't have to shut down for 24 hours to give people that sense of relief people can actually be empowered to make that decision to even if they don't post themselves and just kind of swipe every now and then and and keep up with it what needs to switch for people to be empowered enough to make that decision to maybe take a bit of a step back in the first place? Well, looking into the psychology of it, um, you know, the research has found, like when you're scrolling down, well, when you put something on Instagram and you start getting likes, it's like a dopamine hit. Yeah. It's actually, yeah, it's, like, it's an actual dopamine hit. So that feeds into the fact that we're social animals at the mm. end of the day and we, we need that validation. Yeah. But then every time you scroll down and you see, oh my gosh, that person is doing this and they've got, three million likes, 
then that does the opposite of the dopamine effect. Mm -hmm. And you know, you go down and you scroll to the next photo and it's like, oh, and that person's doing that. And wow, you think even lower. I, I notice it, like I really notice it myself when I'm scrolling through Instagram and I'm like looking at all these, particularly actually, you know, because I follow a lot of people in mental health. Mm -hmm. And um, even myself, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, that person's done that in mental health. and. Oh, I should be doing that. And again, like I feel, oh. Yeah, way down. And then it's like a constant game, but with your mental health. Mm. Like maybe you go up, up one or two levels when you get a few likes, but then ultimately it'll always come dragging down. Yeah, this is it. Um, yeah, I mean, that, look, there's, uh, there are so many benefits to social media. And technology in general. Technology, there are. It's revolutionized the way the world communicates yeah. and connects with each other. For the best, I believe. But nothing's all rosy you have to talk about the negative so that people can be aware enough to make their own informed decision. And I just think like, you don't have to keep up with that. Like there is a way to not be tear. You're not, you're not on Facebook. You're not really on Instagram either. That is a choice that people can make. Mm. I think it's harder to make when you're going through secondary school and when you're a teenager, but it's a choice at the end of the day. Absolutely. I just think there needs to be more boundaries. Um, you know, I'm seeing it more actually in companies. So companies now are setting boundaries in terms of like all the email system will go down at half six, as in you can't work past half six. That's another impact of technology. Mm -hmm. You can never stop work. Well, yeah, you but, bring work home. but 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 some some companies like are realizing that and they're saying no. Um, we want you guys to. We value your mental health, so we want you guys. You can't do any work after half six or on a Friday. Friday evening, that's it. The email again goes down, and you can't work over the weekend. And I think that's good because, yeah, I mean, I'm terrible at, you know, I, I especially when I'm, you know, self-employed. Yeah. Um, I see, I, I just constant work, and there's no boundaries there. So um, I think that's great because sometimes I need to set my own, yeah, boundaries because I would just keep on working working, working non-stop if, if I could probably. Yeah. So um, having those boundaries there and having them set by maybe someone else is quite, is quite useful, I think. I think. Yeah, I agree. I, um, I want to move more into talking about what you're doing now mm. um, and the excitement and enthusiasm for the vision. But I think before we get to that, I think it's really important for us to talk more about the experiences that actually led up to that point. So obviously, Stranger on the Bridge, the documentary, blew up, uh, the Find Mike, Mike campaign blew up. So let's talk about that a little bit. But then again, as I said to you over the phone yesterday, I don't think you propelled into what you're doing now just as a result of that Find Mike campaign blowing up. And that isn't the be all and end all. I'm interested in, in hearing what actually happened in that space between all the media storm, all the media buzz and what you're doing now. Mm -hmm. So um, so just for people who don't know, just can I just give a brief explanation of that whole campaign, what stage you're at in life, and how you navigated through that. Sure. So yeah, when I was at my absolute worst point, when I was 20, um, ran away from hospital, uh, com completely given up. Um, yeah, had, had, had no hope. Um, and so I went to this bridge. Um, but when I went onto the edge, I was stopped by a um, stranger that was walking past and uh, yeah had this uh, amazing interaction that kind of changed everything um, and yeah um, 
yeah, just this, yeah, human, um, human interaction. Uh, it sounds really. I'm making it sound like really basic, but no, you're not. Well, but it. But the thing is, it was basic, and you know, it was human, which is something again. Normal. Normal. That is so often missing from sometimes like the mental system is that yeah basic human interaction you know like just talking to someone instead of it being behind a clipboard and do you know what I mean and he didn't so treat you as someone who was in such a vulnerable position he treated you like a human being yeah. and that is what you responded to absolutely absolutely um, and again giving me that hope that I'll get better it's key so you think from that interaction that is everything that doctors and GPs working mental health should be learning from and adopting. Yeah. That human empathy and just the guidance that, yeah, things will get better. Absolutely. And it's, it's not rocket science, is no, it? it's not. It's not. So then what happened in the time between the event at the bridge and you launching this, this social media campaign? So it was actually six years between Really? The bridge and me deciding to find that stranger okay. that had stopped me on the bridge. Six years. So, it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it was a long time, but, you know, I had to be in a good place yeah, mentally. That was, it took me a long time to, um, yeah, uh, get back on my feet and um, deal with what was going on, um, both in terms of my mental health and my sexuality. It took a long time. So yeah, so that's why, because I, I, people often say, you know, why did you wait six years? And also, not just that, but I had to have the right platform to do it. Yeah. And it was working with a, a mental health charity that gave me that platform. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they were amazing. The, the charity I worked with, uh, Rethink Mental Illness, they believed in me and believed that this campaign could, could be a success and could help people. So I had to have the right people around me and the right yeah, platform to do yeah. it, I think. From the minute that it was mentioned that you should launch this campaign to the time where it was actually in circulation, how long was that? Not long. Not long? Not long at all. Just thrusted right into yeah. it? Yeah, uh, it was, yeah, it was. How, it how was long? Months? Weeks. Weeks? Yeah, weeks. And it how was, really was coping with that in being just in, in the limelight in a short space of time, kind of like zero to 100? Yeah, it was, Bit weird, <laughs> bit weird. Um, yeah, very, yeah, quite quite weird, um, quite quite surreal. Um, but the, the the nice thing was is that there was so much support because mental health is something that touches so many people. Um, and if you haven't been effectively, effectively, sorry, <laughs> um, if you haven't sorry, if you haven't been directly affected by maybe yeah. mental mental health issues yourself then you'll know someone that has been affected by mental health issues. So mental health in some way touches everyone. And it's such a, it really means it's such an important issue for so many people. So it was just really nice that we got so much support for it. And also not just mental health, but suicide as well, because obviously we were touching on suicide in the campaign. And again, you know, when you, when you know the stats and you know, it's the, you know it's the biggest killer of young people in this country, yeah, if, yeah, I think that's, that's why there was so much support. People want to do something about this. Um, how did your, going back to the conversation around social media, 
obviously the positivity around social media was used to your advantage here. What was your opinion on how things spread so quickly with social media acting as a vehicle to allow it to do so? Like, what was that? I don't know, it was quite an open question, but what was it like seeing everything in real time, constantly refreshing, seeing new tweets, seeing the hashtag become top trending, and ultimately it leading to the reunion? What was your, any feelings around, around that, what that was like? Yeah, it, it, it's very, just really strange, really, really strange. Um, yeah, actually in some ways it made me feel quite vulnerable because obviously I was talking about, I wasn't talking about, I don't know, something like, I, was, I wasn't selling sofas, you know what I mean? <laughs> it was talking about my real personal, very difficult experiences. So yeah, it was quite, it was challenging. But did you, was any part of that therapeutic? Was it almost like, yeah. this is me, this happened, I'm putting myself out here and being vulnerable to help other people. Yeah, no, no, absolutely therapeutic and cathartic, but I had to have the right support around me, you know, and, and I was very lucky with the support that I had with family, friends, the charity. Um, I talk to a lot of young people now, actually, that maybe want to get into mental health and share their, their story. And I always say, you know, make sure you have that support around, that support, that support network is so important. When you're going out there and being vulnerable and exposing yourself, it's, you need a good support network around you, it's so important. And I was very lucky. If I hadn't have had a good support network, it would have been really difficult, I think, really difficult. So I was very lucky. So let's talk about how long, so how long of a gap was that campaign launching to kind of what you're doing now or the start of what you're doing now? You started this charity, but what were you doing before then? Yeah, so I started working for mental health organizations. Yeah. Um, I didn't, like when I was first diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, I really kind of was very lost for a long time. I didn't know what I wanted to do or be. I thought that, you know, suddenly my options became very limited, mm -hmm. I thought, and I was, yeah, very lost for a long time. But then working in mental health felt very natural because of my experiences. And so, yeah, started working in, in, in mental health charities. And then from seeing, I think, a lot of the injustice, as we've been talking about, people not getting the help and support they need, um, that's what inspired me to, you know, start campaigning and, and, and doing the work that we're doing particularly with young people it's all happened very organically which is great you know I don't know one thing just has, has led to another just all very just organically yeah. yeah and um, again because there's just I find that there's just so much support for for, for mental health and for, ju for reducing the stigma and for you know particularly helping young people mm -hmm. not just young people people of all ages but particularly trying to reach young people for all the reasons we've talked about, like yeah. social media and pressure, everyone knows that young people are, are struggling more than ever before. So mm -hmm. when I say that, you know, I want to do more for, for young people's mental health, people are like, yeah, we need to. So, um, yeah, I feel uh, very fortunate to kind of be able to do what I'm, I'm, I'm doing. Yeah, have a lot of support. So something we briefly spoke about before, and you hadn't heard, the, heard of the term hustle yeah. porn. Um, I think it's a relatively new term, and I think it's, it's not just in entrepreneurship, and it's not just in young entrepreneurship, I think it's just in general life, 
today in working life, a kind of pressure to work 24-7. Um, but bringing the context down into young entrepreneurship or starting your own organization, um, which is something that we obviously both share. Um, I just want to just chat around this idea of hustle porn and the idea around over-glamorizing working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, where that comes from and the impact that can have on mental health. And importantly as well, I just want to discuss and talk around ways in which that could be prevented as well. Because I think you really hit the nail on the head when you said patience is the key. And I think the reason why there's so many mental health issues in entrepreneurship is down to a lack of patience. Mm. That goes hand in hand with the social media thing because if you start a business or a charity or whatever, you are so full of life, especially as like a young entrepreneur, you're so full of life. You said you were 32, you said you weren't young, but you're young. I think you're, you're so full of life, so f full of passion and ambition, you just want to get going. Yeah, when things, when shit hits the fan mm. at the first hurdle, that does set you back a little bit. Sure. And when you're constantly comparing yourself to other entrepreneurs or other peers who are so much far better, further along than you, that can be quite hard and detrimental to your mental health. Tia, can we get up some of those stats on the TV? Yeah. Freeman's research has shown that startup founders are twice as likely to suffer from depression, six times more likely to suffer from ADHD, three times more likely to suffer from substance abuse, 10 times more likely to suffer from bipolar disorder, twice as likely to have a psychiatric hospitalization, and twice as likely to have suicidal thoughts. From your perspective, why do you think that is? Um, because it's so hard, it's, it's really hard, it's really tough. Um, as you say, especially now because there's so much constant comparison mm -hmm. and like this kind of impatience, you know, has to be done now. Well, that um, links back into social media because of the instant gratification mm, that technology no, has bred. Absolutely. We need things now, and if it doesn't happen now, then we're not fulfilled. Yeah, I know this is it. I think, um, uh, again, in terms of mental health, I see a lot more support in terms of like uh, people within a, in a workplace, mm -hmm. like in a, in a, you know, like large corporates now are doing much more in terms of mental health, like um, bringing in coaches or therapists or providing stuff for their staff. But when you're you know, starting up um, a business or when you're working freelance, that's, well, who do you, you don't have that kind of support network around you. Um, there needs to be much more focus, I think, on, on the mental health of, of entrepreneurs, because yeah. um, like I said, it, it's happening within actual businesses, but if you're, you know, you're starting up, you're doing stuff on your own, that, that support just isn't there. And, you know, things like everything from f like finance, you know, I mean, it's just so much that is so tough. Um, you know, I used to work in companies now, then I started off on my own and I, that's, that's, that's pretty tough, you know, um, having to like manage everything yourself and um, taking on so much responsibility and yeah, there's no one there to really um, look after your, your mental health. You kind of have to manage it on your own, but you don't have time because you're constantly <laughs> yeah. replying to emails and, and needing to, you know, on my, iPhone, on my iPhone, I've got like so many lists of like things I need to do. Um, and I never had that when I was working in companies. Like, uh, of course, I had stuff to do, but nothing like what I've got yeah. to do now when I'm working freelance and you know setting up this charity. There's just there's, it never ends, and that's the thing it never ends. Um, and that is really tough. And there's just not enough support or places to go. Um, I think for 
entrepreneurs or you know people in startups to to talk about you know their um, well-being or um, you know get support or there just there needs to be much more focus I think. Um, so, so what are some telltale signs that maybe things are building up a little bit? What is some actionable advice that people could look out for? And then on top of that, what's some advice of people dealing with it as well? So, so do you mean in themselves or in other people? So, amazing, yeah, both, sure. both. So in, in yourself, first of all, yeah. um, and then, yeah, how can you help other people that you may be working with? Well, um, it can be really difficult because, you know, as you said earlier, it's not visible. You know, it's not like you have a, maybe a lump that's mm. growing and growing. It's not like that. You know, it's not visible and there's no blood test. To, you know what I mean? It's really, really hard. So um, I think, you know, in terms of, well, yourself and other people, if there's changes in habits, like maybe sleeping, maybe you're sleeping more, sleeping less, maybe you're um, eating more, again, eating less. Um, those can be, if it's you or someone else, those can be telltale signs of, and maybe everything's all right, but it's important just to check in, yeah. I think, you know, either with yourself or with um, someone else. I, I know, you know, for me, I've gone through different periods of like uh, sleeping a lot less and sort of developing insomnia. And um, uh, sometimes, you know, I've just kind of accepted it and not checked in. Do you know what I mean? I've just been like, OK, I'm s I've been sleeping badly for the last three months. Uh, but instead of like... Um, Saying, okay, well, what is going on? I'm just like, okay, just got to get through brush it, it just got to brush it. And again, you wouldn't do that. Again, if you had, like I said, a lump that was growing, 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 you just, you wouldn't ignore it for like three months. So I think, yeah, checking in uh, with yourself, with, the, with each other, um, and, you know, not being afraid to actually step back and, and you know, say, oh my gosh, I need to stop. Like, um, it's funny, like, um, so, for example, right now, um, before I came in here and started talking to you, I was saying to myself, um, right, I need to get home tonight and I need to do this email, that email, this email. And um, then I was like, no, Johnny, do you know what, no? Like, no, that's too much. Like, you know, you've had a really busy day um, and uh, you, you need uh, to switch off tonight, actually. And I think that's taken me a while to get there, to that place of, yeah. you know, um, really looking after my my mental health. Having, again, it's just about boundaries. Having those yeah. boundaries are really, really, really important. Um, what boundaries have you set? Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, and how often do you just switch off? Or is it just, do you know when things might be building up a little bit and you're like, no, I need to just take yeah. the evening off? Is it more as it comes, you decide? Yeah, which maybe, maybe I should be setting more firm boundaries. Um, but for me, it is very much like, no, do you know what? Tonight, I just, I need to switch off um, or I need to go to bed early or um, I'm going to leave those emails till tomorrow because I just can't do them. Mm -hmm. And that's OK. Do you know what I mean? I think a key, actually, that we haven't mentioned is not beating yourself up or not judging yourself. That, yeah, that is or the key, right. judging other people if, you know, they need to, um, yeah, just, just kind of. It's giving yourself a break, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. It's so, it's, it's, so it's, important. So, it's, it's so hard, though, when you're so full of passion for what you're doing and, yeah. you, and you know what the end goal looks like and you know what all of your work is building up to it's hard to sometimes take a step back and stop because i don't know if you feel the same but this is what i've 
had with similar conversations is when you don't work, even for like the hours after, um, like 9 p.m. onwards, you feel guilt? Mm. Do you feel the same? Yeah, for sure. Which is the Sunday afternoon, 5 p.m., after a long week and you've accomplished so much, or 9 p.m. after a Thursday evening, you still feel that same guilt? Mm -hmm. And what do you think needs to be done to, I can, I can look through everything I've accomplished and still feel guilty for the downtime when I'm taking time for myself. And the rationality from my perspective of brushing off is, I'm so driven with what I'm doing and so clear with what I want to achieve, but that isn't healthy. How can that be? So what, okay, so here's a, here's a what advice would you give to me? Because then what advice would other people who are feeling the same thing? <laughs> I'm still learning, I'm still learning myself. I mean, um, yeah, I think, uh, Well, you know, I've learned a lot. I've done a lot in terms of um, things like self-compassion. Mm -hmm. I think self-compassion is really underrated. Um, no, seriously, I think, you know. Um, what does that mean? Does that, what does that actually mean? Is it self-confidence, loving yourself or? Yeah, not self-confidence. Loving and accepting and being kind to yourself, mm -hmm. essentially as you probably would to, you know, your, a, a best friend. Um, we can be so, so, so hard on ourselves. You know, you know that phrase, we're our own worst enemies. Yeah. I think that's really true. We, we sometimes really are, and we put so much pressure and expect so much from ourselves that we wouldn't expect from other people, yeah. but because it's us. Um, and I think, again, that sort of comes from like school days, you know, like, um, we have to be the best at this, at that, at everything. Um, and we have to put other people first all the time. So we, we're, we're taught growing up that, you know, um, especially, you know, we both come from the Jewish community and, you know, you're very much taught to put other people mm -hmm. always before you, always. And yeah, I agree, you know, you, of course you should put other people, but, but actually no, it's, you know that whole analogy, like on a, when you're on a plane and you're, you know, you're about to take off and they do the, briefing and they say, you know, oxygen masks are going to drop down and make sure you fit yours yeah, before you fit people. anyone else's, even like children. Um, and always, I always found that really like strange because I was like, surely you should fit kids first. Mm -hmm. But then no, because how are you going to, if you're, if you don't look after yourself first, how can you be any good to anyone? Tell, tell me more about the charity, your charity now, when that started. Mm -hmm what your vision for it is and any challenges that you found along the way? So, um, the charity that we set up is called Beyond Shame, Beyond Stigma. And it's, um, yeah, a charity aimed at, at young people, predominantly, but also... What age know, by young people, what? Not to, you know, well, I don't like to put a sort of... Some people think they're young at... <laughs> young at heart. <laughs> well, like, you know, 29, you know, that's fine. I, I don't like to put, ooh, just because you're, I don't know, 27 doesn't mean you're young anymore. I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, that's why I completely disagree with the system again we have, which is where as soon as you 18, as soon as you turn 18, it's like you're cut off from the young people's mental health services. Just because you're 18, you're an adult, which is complete rubbish, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, so yeah, so so kind of yeah, um, different ages, and um, also looking at helping supporting teachers and families, and. Um, yeah, essentially, it's 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 a, a, a grant giving organisation. Okay. So um, 
instead of because we thought about well we could provide services ourselves but there are services out there they just don't get the funding they need so instead of us creating new services why don't we actually put funding back into you know the services that how long did you think about developing a charity for services and then when did that flip change to say actually we're going to be a grant giving organization because like from from the conversations we're having up to that point that does make a lot more sense because more change can happen on a bigger level mm. but where did that switch happen when did that occur? well so the last few years we've been traveling around the country and, and different countries and um, visiting a lot of different like, charities, organisations, they're doing great work. But you know, seeing how many of these charities and organisations having their funding cut. Mm -hmm. As an example, I, I was in Scotland um, at the end of last year and visited this amazing uh, mental health charity that's helping young people. Um, but they were having to close their doors because yeah, they'd lost all their funding. And I was talking to all these young people who are heartbroken because, you know, what are they going to... Some of them only left their houses because of this charity providing support. And, and you know, now that the funding had stopped, what's going to happen to all these young people that, that desperately need this, you know, support? It just, yeah. So, so you know, if we can fund organisations like that and keep them going, um, then, yeah, then, then that's, that's what we want to do, essentially. And doing things, you know... Again, you get, I get so frustrated because I go into so many schools and they've cut like their, their counsellors down because again, funding, budgets, they've had to reduce the number of hours counsellors can do and more and more uh, pupils are asking for help and yet there's less and less support. So again, if we can fund counsellors in schools and gosh, there's yeah, lots of different stuff. Um, How are you going about getting the funding to give the funding in the first place? Um, are you finding that a challenge? Uh, yes, well, more, it's more about time, just, you know, finding the time because, um, yeah, finding the time to, to kind of go and, go and ask people, you know, it's not just, oh, can I have some money? You, you know, you've got to really um, invest. Um, and, um, but yeah, no, when I do talk to people about it, people are really interested and, and want to support, um, which is great. It's really great. And um, so, yeah, the more we fundraise, obviously, the more we can give in terms of grants. So, yeah, I want to fundraise as much as possible and, and start giving out grants very soon. Um, I think, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they say that they want to support mental health and they want to fundraise for mental health. And often, and I'm not criticizing at all, but often people will fundraise for like the biggest mental health charities that are out there. I'm not going to name names, but, but they've, and they've already got a lot of funding of course they could always do with more but they've already got a lot of funding whereas the more local like grassroots mental health organizations often get forgotten about because it's like uh okay we'll just donate to the big ones but you know yeah need to keep in mind that there's the smaller ones that also need the funding and, and often that yeah funding just doesn't get dis distributed evenly you know um, um you want to become that big one that everyone almost is that your is that your aim to become that big charity that everyone always donates to because the amount of money that you get in, the amount of capital that you get in, means the more that you can help these grassroots charities grow. I think that's a really nice Yeah, structure. no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Because, you know, there's been a lot, of, like, just to be completely frank, there's, yeah. there's been a lot of debate about, you know, things like, 
how much you know do, do we pay staff because again if you look at some of the big charities that are out there they pay like their CEOs a lot of mm -hmm. money and I, oh, I get it because you know they work hard and they deserve that money but then um, you know that money could or, or, or other costs other costs um, you know that, that are spent within charity stuff could be distributed to the people that really need it rather than spent to you know at the top yep. so oh, we're trying to sort of we don't want our charity we want most of our fundraising that comes in to actually go to the services so the people that need it. it as well yeah I yeah. know it's what, a difficult one it's such a difficult one of course. What, what, what would you say is the most difficult thing about running a charity because that right there seems pretty hard mm. would you say what would you say is the most difficult thing or challenging thing about running a charity well I think I think to keep up the fundraising mm -hmm. to keep up the fundraising um, I speak to a lot of charities and that is it's so hard because you know um, how do you keep people coming back and yeah. fundraising? There's so many amazing charities out there, and there's more and more charities out there all the time, fighting for the same sort of pot of funds. Mm -hmm. How do you keep that charity, making sure the fundraising keeps coming in? That's that's what is is hard already, you know. Because I set up the charity very much like we're just going to raise all this money and then you know give grants, but already like the board of trustees is saying, well, what about year two? What about year three? <laughs> and I'm like because I'm very much sort of in the moment person. Mm -hmm. I haven't even thought about like year two, how are we gonna, what's our fundraising strategy yeah. gonna be? Do you know what I mean? And you've got to always think, you know, next steps. And that, that was the challenge, I think. Um, and also, I think a challenge for me is, you know, already we're getting so many people get in touch with us and say, we've got this project that we need funding for, we've got that project. And all these projects are so important and valuable and oh, I wanna help them all. So, um, but, you know, if we, if we helped every single organization, then we'd be spread kind of too thin, do you know what I mean? So, but it's, that's, that's so really, hard. Yeah, that is really So difficult. hard, it's so hard. And so actually, I'm setting up a, a youth board, um, you know, a board of young people who have lived experience because I want them to kind of decide where the grant's going to. Um, that's really nice. Just because I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm 32 now, so kind of, not that young, and um, yeah, it should be them that decide where the, the funding is going to go to. So yeah, I think that's really important because again, so many charities—not so many—that's not fair. A, a, a number of charities that I speak to, or not just charities actually, like again within the mental system, so many decisions are made without consulting the people that are the end user. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I just don't get that. Should, everything should revolve, revolve around the end user, whether oh. you're a business or whether yeah. you're a charity. But so much of it doesn't. Like, what frustrates me particularly is, um, you know, when it comes to like the NHS, mm -hmm. like, um, so the commissioners that decide where all the funding goes will sit around a table and say, oh, mm, yeah, put a bit of funding there. Nah, they don't need funding. They don't consult, like, the people that are actually going to use so it just doesn't make sense and the same goes for charities often um, you know they'll make decisions about what's happening without consulting the people that are actually using and it just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense so how far along are you in developing this youth board because it sounds incredible or is it just an it's, it's just an idea no, 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 it's an idea but it's going to happen i just need to um, <laughs> um, sit down and, and just just really um, over the next month two months when did you have that brainwave that idea was it you or was yeah, it through no, conversation it was, no it was me and I've been very adamant about it with the trustees that we've got we've got an amazing board of trustees but I've been very adamant that 
you know, it should be the young people that have, have used services that should decide where the money goes. So it's up here, <laughs> just need to, yeah, and I will, I will absolutely, I'll put it into action, yeah. I will, yeah. Well, one bit of advice would you give to someone who's looking to set up a charity? You know, it's, I was talking to someone, was it today or yesterday, about this, was it yesterday? Anyway, they were saying to me that they wanted to set this charity up, but they gave up. And a lot of people do give up because it takes a long time, and I didn't realize this before, it takes a long time to, to, for a charity to go through in terms of the charity commission. There's so much kind of paperwork and you know, so, many, so much back and forth with the charity commission who, who set the rules. Um, and I don't think, I wasn't prepared for that. A lot of people aren't prepared for that when they set up a charity. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got this great idea for a charity, it can help so many people, but um, be patient, be patient, and be prepared to, um, you know, have to, you know, wait. Because, you know, you want, once you've got this idea for a charity, you want it to happen right away, yeah. but you have to be patient, be patient. Um, and again, have, have good support around you, because again, the, the person I was talking to, I mean, it must have been yesterday, was saying you know she was doing it on her own and it was really hard the, the back and forth with the charity commission all this paperwork whereas when i set the charity up i had a lot of support people you know saying i can do this for you i can do that for you so make sure you've got that support around you if you're setting up a charity it's so hard to do it on your own yep. um but yeah be patient and um don't be afraid to sometimes push you know the charity commission because we did you know if we didn't hear back from them we'd be like you know, what, what's happening, we want to set the charity up. So, so you, you were set up in six months, right? Mm. What's the average, do you know? Well, it varies. I mean, a lot of, some charities I've spoken to have been like a year, two years. It's a long time. And do you think that was down to you pushing um, and being stubborn? Yeah, yeah? Some, some, yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think probably. Because, um, but also I think maybe because, again, there's so much, even today, in the news, there was, I don't know if you saw, about mental health in primary schools. Did you see it? Yeah, there was a big piece about mental health in primary schools. So it's really on the agenda for people. Mm -hmm. So perhaps that's another reason why, maybe. Yeah. So where are you at now with the charity? What do you need in order to get to the next level? And what would you ask the listeners or viewers to do if they feel inclined to want to help? So, um, I think in terms of the charity, we need, um, obviously, we need you know, donations, of course. Yep. Um, but we also need uh, volunteers. Mm -hmm. And we need people to um, give us uh, their ideas and their suggestions of where the grants can go. You know, I don't want it all to be about just fundraise, just give us your money, give us your money. That happens too much in charity. Yep. I find it's just, just give us the money. It's easy to fall into that line as mm. well, isn't it? But the charity, I want the charity also to be about raising awareness, but also because um, again, some of the charities that I work with need that they, they're really kind of careful about how much they go into like politics. Or whereas I want our charity to be quite bold and mm -hmm. you know campaign for like real change, create change. Yeah, yeah. You have to be bold if you want change. Absolutely. So ballsy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, any any ideas or things you'd like to see or yeah, campaigns or. Anything like that would be cool. Yeah. Let's. Um, we're about to move into the power three questions, uh, but before we do that, one last sentiment or anything you want to leave around mental health, if you could, whatever that may be. Okay. 
Um, very, very open question. But it doesn't look, you don't need to place importance of it being inspirational or whatever, just anything that, I guess, just comes from the heart and is authentic to you. Okay. Um, I think, uh, well, I suppose, you know, there could be people watching that might be struggling themselves. Um, and I think the important thing maybe we haven't touched on so much is that there is, I know, because we've talked a lot about things that might be wrong with like mm -hmm. the system, but actually there is like a lot of help and support out there yeah. now. Um, and a lot through technology actually. Yeah. So as an example, um, there's um, uh, a new text service, 24 seven text line, which is called Shout. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, as I said, it's available 24 seven. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could be watching this and you might be struggling and you might need to talk to someone and you can pick up your phone right now and, you know, text shout and, you know, you'll be put through to someone that's, that's trained, that's, that's qualified, that, you know, will be able to be there and, and, and you know, uh, listen to and talk through via text what's going on. I think, yeah, it's important to um, let people know that there is um, so much, so much out there now. Um, via different mediums, via text, via phone, via in-person, do you know what I mean? Um, and to, you know, not be afraid to look for what, what, what's out there, really, around them. As, as I mentioned, the Hub of Hope is great, yeah. because you can find out what's in your local area. But yeah, there's also so much uh, online, so don't be afraid to, to access it. I think that's really key, and essentially you're not alone because of that. Cool, I like that. So, we end ev we're gonna end every single podcast mm -hmm. with these three questions. Yeah. I've been advised to not dwell into the responses because I have a tendency to do that. It's just, I'll give the question, okay. you give the answer, come from the gut, whatever comes first, and then we'll move on. Okay, so number one is, if you could give your 20-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Um, it gets brighter, it gets brighter. You know, it won't always stay like this. And um, yeah, things, things change, they do change. Yeah. What do you want your hypothetical great grandchildren to remember you for? <laughs> um, uh, I want them to remember me for um, not being afraid to really speak up and to kind of um, speak from the heart. Um, yeah, and, and not be afraid to um, say things that maybe other people would be afraid to say and, and, you know, try and create change. Finally, okay. finish the sentence, the world needs more. Oh gosh, there's so many different words that I could put there. <laughs> um, what was the first one that came to mind? Uh, love, essentially, the world needs more, more love, but not in terms of, because people interpret love in different ways. I think, I don't mean maybe love as in <laughs> romance, although that's always good. I mean, more love is in kind of um, love for one another um, without judgment and without prejudice and uh, more, ex maybe acceptance maybe is a better word. Love and acceptance. I can only have one word. You know what, love I'll, give you, I'll give you two. Okay, give me two. Love and acceptance, I think. Um, and non-judgment, <laughs> the three. Yeah. Jordi, thank you. So much Thanks for this. Much. Really, thank you. honestly, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, we are going to link everything that was discussed, including Johnny's charity, uh, right below. And mate, thank you so Cheers. much for your Thanks time. Thanks very much. Thank really you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Cheers.
Cool. Cut. Thank you. Good man. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for watching and being part of the P Squared community. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe for more of the same content. Through the journeys, insights, ideas, and stories of our guests, we hope to propel you forward to execute on your goals and help you achieve a bright shift in this world. Till next time.